Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's getting harder and harder to find parts of the world that remain unexplored. With the advent of satellite imagery, we've now reached a stage where you can see practically every inch of the globe from your own web browser. Yet even still, there remain some parts of the Earth where few humans have ever visited. And some of the people who have ventured to these far-off regions never return. If you're looking for a place that's both beautiful and isolated, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better spot on the planet than the Nahani National Park. The roughly 11,000 square miles of pristine wilderness is part of the Mackenzie Mountains region, located in the Decho region of northwest Canada. The word Nahani comes from the indigenous Dene people, and it roughly translates to the people over there. The people, that the phrase alludes to, were another group known as the Naha, who, according to legend, weren't exactly the friendliest sorts. The Naha lived in the mountains and would sometimes raid lowland settlements, murder a bunch of people, then retreat to their caves. The park itself was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and one look at it and you'll understand why. The land contains a breathtaking array of geysers, lush greenery, and canyons, all lying in the shadow of the majestic mountains jutting up all around. Here you'll find Virginia Falls, a massive waterfall 315 feet high. That's roughly twice as high as its more well-known cousin Niagara Falls. Winding through the Central Valley is the South Nahani River, which over the millennia has managed to carve four major canyons through the landscape. In fact, the river is such a powerful force in the area, it has become a prime example of what is known as an antecedent river which means it actually has maintained the same course it had even before the mountains formed around it. As a result, the mountains pretty much follow the ebb and flow of the river, rather than the other way around. Despite how breathtaking the scenery is, much of the Nahani National Park remains unexplored to this day. Due to a lack of any tourist accommodations, and the fact that there are no roads leading into the park. You can only get there by plane, or by taking a boat up the river. But even despite how remote the place is, there has been some human habitation there. It's estimated that the first native tribes settled the area going back at least nine or 10,000 years ago. Many superstitious natives tended to avoid the place altogether, having long made up their minds that the area was haunted. Folk tales tell of the demons and evil spirits who inhabit those woods. Those who did inhabit the region, like the native Dene people, would often tell cautionary tales of mysterious creatures who lurked in the vast forests, or of the violent and deadly Naha tribe who lived in the mountains. It's hard to say whether the Naha really existed, or if they were just a folktale. They were said to be a tribe of fierce warriors who wore terrifying masks and adorned themselves in strange armor. 
The tribal warriors were said to be larger than normal men, and they were also described as carrying strange and powerful weapons unlike anything anyone else had ever seen before. Oh, and two more things you should know about the Naha. One, that they used those weapons to decapitate their enemies. And two, that one day, the entire tribe is said to have suddenly and inexplicably disappeared, never to be seen again. European fur traders were among the first Westerners to make their way back to the valley in the 18th century. Word spread quickly about this lush green wonderland, and about the vast riches that were just lying there untouched by anyone. Rumors began to spread that there was gold in them thar hills. Many miners moved into the region, looking to stake their claims along the South Nahani River Basin, or just passing through on their way to the gold fields of the Yukon that had opened up during the Great Klondike Gold Rush. Although very little gold was ever found in the Nahani Valley, that didn't stop the rumors from spreading about the supposed vast gold reserves just waiting in the mountains for the right miner to find. A few miners returned to civilization with stories about finding nuggets of gold as big as their fists. It was at the start of the 20th century that another, more disturbing legend began to emerge from the Nahani Valley. In 1908, two brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod, outfitted themselves for a mining expedition and headed into the mountains. Only they never returned. At first, it wasn't considered particularly unusual that they weren't heard from again. Most people assumed they had likely run into the sort of usual trouble that could befall a couple of wayward adventurers. The valley could be treacherous if you weren't careful. It was full of sinkholes, jagged rocks, and any number of wild animals that could have done the brothers in. One rumor sprung up that the two men actually had hit the mother load, and that they were actually living like kings somewhere else in the world with all their gold. But all those possibilities proved to be untrue, when about a year after the McLeod brothers vanished, their bodies were discovered along the river. They had both been decapitated, and their heads were nowhere to be found. That story would have been disturbing enough on its own, but just a few years later, it happened again. In 1917, a Swiss prospector named Martin Jorgensen moved into the Nahani Valley looking to make his fortune and glory. He built a log cabin for himself and set up a small mining operation. It was believed that Jorgensen generally got along well with the other natives. That is until one night when his cabin mysteriously burned to the ground with him in it. They found Jorgensen's skeleton among the ashes. Well, most of it anyway. Jorgensen's head was missing. In 1945, yet another miner was found dead and decapitated in his sleeping bag. Once again, his head was never recovered. Over time, the region gained a number of rather descriptive nicknames. These included Dead Men Valley, Headless Creek, and the Funeral Range. Although the one that seemed to get used the most is the Valley of the Headless Men. Around the same time that Martin Jorgensen was killed, another trapper named James O'Brien went missing. He was later found frozen to death in the woods. And at least in this instance, he still had his head attached. But that doesn't make his death any less unusual. You see, O'Brien was found frozen to death, still clutching a pack of matches right next to a campfire pit. Some of the people who discovered his frozen corpse thought it appeared that the man had been flash-frozen within seconds. 
The valley seems to be something of a paranormal hotspot. Besides all the strange deaths, there are thought to be at least 44 people who just up and vanished without a trace in the wilderness between 1901 and 1969. Many people have claimed to have seen strange lights in the sky. Others talk about some of the cryptids they believe stalk the woods, including a type of prehistoric bear dog called an Amphicyonidae, which is an animal thought to have gone extinct back in the Pleistocene era. This particular cryptid also sometimes gets tied into another native legend of a massive wolf-like creature called a Wahila that the Dene believes lives in the woods. Of course, being the remote wilderness that it is, there's also a legend about a hairy man-ape. This particular brand of Bigfoot is a creature called the Nukluk, which is supposed to stand about five feet tall and sometimes is even known to wear clothes. Oh, and apparently they whistle. In 1964, a man named John Baptiste was on an expedition into the valley when he and the members of his party allegedly encountered a hairy man-like creature fitting the Nukluk's description before the creature darted off into the woods. According to the story, Baptiste and his party continued to hear a strange whistling noise coming from the brush all around them as they attempted to track the creature. According to the Dene, that whistling sound is the hunting call of the Nukluk. Yet another strange thing was once found in an ice cave called the Grata Valeri. Inside that cave were found the skeletal remains of over 100 doll sheep who appeared to have starved to death around 2500 BC. As a result, the cave has earned a nickname of its own, the Gallery of Lost Sheep. Many theories exist about who or what is responsible for all the beheadings, disappearances, and other strange events throughout the valley. Some people say that the valley is cursed, and that the spirits of the Naha tribe, who were once known for beheading their victims, still haunt those mountains. In fact, the Dene people didn't think the Naha were people at all. Rather, they thought they were some sort of evil creatures who acted as the point guard for the demonic forces that cursed the valley. There is one theory some people have put forth about the Naha that brings them a bit more down to earth. Some people have suggested that the Naha might have been a lost tribe of Vikings. Which, if you think about it, doesn't seem quite so crazy. Viking artifacts that predate Columbus have been found in various locations throughout North America, indicating that they reached the continent long before other European explorers. If natives from the Dene tribe encountered a group of Vikings wearing helmets, armor, and carrying traditional Viking swords and other weapons, it's possible they could have mistaken them for monsters. It should be noted that many Vikings believe that if an enemy was decapitated, then they would be denied entrance to Valhalla. Other theories exist about the Naha Valley having a secret entrance to the so-called Hollow Earth. The concept of the hollow earth is worth its own episode, but in short, it's the idea that the earth is a hollow ball with a vast and alive underground world lying just beneath the earth's crust. If that's not fringy enough for you, there's yet another theory that suggests the area is home to a thin spot between dimensions, and that all the people who have disappeared have been whisked off to somewhere beyond. More earthly theories suggest that the strange deaths and disappearances might have been the work of hostile tribesmen or perhaps even a murderous miner out there to protect his claim at any cost. If you look at the span of time between the known deaths of 1908 to 1945, the idea that some crazed lunatic could have been living in the woods murdering people doesn't quite seem so outlandish. As for all the disappearances throughout the region, as I mentioned, this is a fairly treacherous area, full of unexplored caves, extreme weather, jagged rocks, wild animals, and sinkholes. 
There are plenty of ways for a person to die and vanish without a trace that don't involve evil spirits or interdimensional portals. It's impossible to say for certain what could be the cause of all these mysteries. To this day, the Valley of the Headless Men remains largely unexplored. Most geological surveys of the area have been done by air, and for the most part, only fortune seekers or adventurous rafters have done much exploring of the region. And while it is believed that beneath those mountains there could exist huge warrens containing underground hot springs and vast cave systems, if anything unusual does exist beneath the earth, it's likely to remain a mystery for a long time to come. The girls laid flowers on their mother's grave, and they told her how much they loved and missed her. She died from a long battle with cancer, and they'd already done much grieving and much suffering as they watched the woman they all loved wither away. They visited the cemetery as often as they could. This wasn't always easy. Their father was a bus driver, and he worked long nights. This meant that back in the fall of 1986, Jessica and Annie Andrews were often left in their Massachusetts home alone while he went off to work, home alone with nothing but each other and their grief. It's never easy losing someone you love, but death doesn't care when it comes to matters of the heart. You're never ready to lose that special someone, not really. One minute the person you know and love is there, the next they're gone, and they're never, ever going to return. What you're left with are the empty spaces their death leaves. That hollow void that remains when a loved one disappears from our lives. It's that awkward silence that follows when you make some offhand remark to that person, only to realize you're never going to receive an answer. It's the memories of them that seem to imprint themselves on even the most commonplace objects that remind you of them, and that bring the tears and pain gushing back. But however you choose to grieve... And whatever you do to deal with the pain, time goes on. The calendar can be cruel that way. Tomorrow the sun will rise, and the moon will set, and the whole cycle will get repeated again and again. For the Andrews sisters, time moved on. A few months after their mother's death, 15-year-old Annie began receiving phone calls from a boy named Danny. Danny said he went to another high school in the area and that he'd gotten her number from a mutual friend. Annie liked talking to Danny. He was funny and polite, and he began to make her feel the tiniest bit normal again. Normal was giggling over the phone to a boy she was a bit smitten with. Not normal was burying your mother after cancer gobbled her up, bit by bit, while you stand helplessly by, unable to do anything to stop it. These calls went on for weeks before Annie finally agreed to go on a date with him. But when she answered the door, Danny wasn't at all what she'd been expecting. The boy she'd been speaking to on the phone had described himself as athletic and blonde. The captain of the football team, in fact. But the boy on her front doorstep was lanky with dark hair and a face that was a roadmap of acne scars. Annie reluctantly agreed to go out for ice cream with him, 
but right after, she made up an excuse and told him she had to get home. Time went on. Annie tried to forget about her disappointing date. She'd been silly, she thought. It was too early for her to have been thinking about boys and dating again anyway. She had her sister to think about, and her dad, and school, and all the other parts of her life that she now needed to reassemble like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. A puzzle that most definitely did not include dark-haired boys that told lies about themselves over the phone. But at the center of the puzzle, there was still that missing piece that would have been labeled Mom. And without that piece, the puzzle would never be complete. In June of 1987, Jessica and Annie decided to try something they'd never attempted before. They went into the basement and held a seance to try to reach out and talk to their mother's spirit. That's how their father Brian found them when he got home chanting over some allegedly magical crystals in their basement. He led them upstairs and talked to them about how their mother was gone, and they just needed to find a way to move on too. They had a good cry, and even a bit of a laugh too. The seance had been a bust after all. Their mother never answered, which meant the silly ceremony hadn't worked. Or so they thought. That night, as Jessica and Annie lay in their beds, something in the walls answered them. It started with a knocking, soft at first, but then more emphatic. As they lay there in the dark, both Annie and Jessica had to ask each other if they'd each really heard the noise, or if they were just imagining things. But no, something really was there, rapping at the walls. It wasn't long before they realized that if they asked the entity questions, it would answer them. The seance had really worked. Their mom was back. Or so they thought. Over time, the strange events in the girls' home grew even creepier and took on a sinister edge. Small objects began to vanish from around the house. Sometimes they'd come home and find that furniture had been moved around when no one was there. Soon, the tiny knocks began to grow in ferocity into loud banging on the walls, sometimes hard enough to rattle the pictures on the walls. The girls began to believe that whatever they'd conjured up in the basement that night in June, it most certainly wasn't their mother. Their mother wouldn't scare them that way. They tried to tell their father about what was going on, but he didn't believe them. They were just imagining things, he told them. He hadn't noticed anything wrong. But Jessica and Annie insisted they weren't making this up. Eventually, Brian got angry and told them enough was enough. There'd be no more talk of ghosts, and that was final. The strange activity went on for months. The girls became increasingly terrified. Then one evening, while the girls were sitting downstairs watching television, the knocking started up again, this time from down in the basement. Annie went into the kitchen and got a knife. Jessica cowered behind her as both girls crept down the creaking basement steps. Now, if you've ever seen any horror movies, you know one thing you should never, ever do is go down in the basement. But that's just what Annie and Jessica did. They both fully expected something to jump out at them. But when they got to the bottom step, they didn't see anything. Not at first, at least. Nothing but a dimly lit basement filled with stacks of old boxes. That's when they saw the message written in blood on one of the walls. It said, I'm in your room. Come find me. The girls raced up the steps screaming. They burst out the front door and ran down the street to a neighbor's home. They called their father and frantically told him what had happened. 
Brian rushed home from work and was met in front of his house by some waiting police officers. The police and Brian searched the house and didn't find any signs of an intruder. And the blood on the basement wall turned out to not be blood at all, but ketchup. Brian was furious. What were the girls thinking playing a sick joke like this? He gave them a stern lecture about making up stories. Didn't they know he could get in a lot of trouble for leaving work so abruptly? He told them he was going to enroll them in grief counseling right away to help them get over the loss of their mother. Things settled down for a little while around the house. At least for a couple of weeks they did anyway. Then one night while Annie and Jessica were home alone, the loud banging started again. This time coming from upstairs. Annie grabbed a knife once again. They didn't want to call their father this time. He wouldn't believe them anyway. So Annie decided to head up there and investigate on her own. She slowly crept up the steps. Her heart was beating rapid fire in her chest. When she got almost to the top, she saw another message scrolled on her bedroom wall. I'm back, it read. Find me if you can. Annie and Jessica bolted out the front door and raced to the neighbor's house. Brian was furious when he got the call from his daughters and they forced him to leave work again. He stormed back inside the house, despite the girls pleading with him not to go in there. When he got inside, he noticed all the TVs were on and the volume was cranked up uncomfortably loud on all of them. The neighbors told Brian that they'd made a cursory check of the house a little earlier, only the TVs hadn't been turned on then. Brian went further into the house. He headed up the stairs where Annie and Jessica said they'd heard noises coming from earlier. As he reached the top of the steps, he saw a new message written in ketchup on Annie's wall. It said, Marry me. Brian stepped into the room. Something moved from out of the corner of his eye. For a split second, Brian thought his wife had returned from the grave. There was a figure standing there wearing his wife's wedding dress and a blonde wig. But it wasn't his wife. It was a young man wearing his dead wife's dress. His face was covered in white face paint, and he had a large hatchet in his hands. The young man didn't say anything as he swung the hatchet in Brian's direction. The hatchet missed, and Brian shoved him out of the way as he bolted from the room and out of the house. Police arrived on the scene soon after. They searched the house, and at first they were unable to find any sign of the intruder. Then one of the officers noticed a small door behind a dresser the family used to store mail and other items. The officer pulled the dresser out of the way and opened the door. Inside was the intruder, and he wasn't a stranger. He was someone the girls both knew. It was Daniel LaPlante, the same strange young man who had taken Annie out for ice cream months earlier. They dragged LaPlante out of the crawl space, kicking and screaming as they hauled him downstairs and into the waiting police car. After Daniel LaPlante's arrest, there was some deliberation to decide if he would be charged as a juvenile or an adult. The court decided he should be charged as an adult, which ironically proved to be the worst thing that could happen. While LaPlante was awaiting trial, his mother posted bail for him, and at least for a time, LaPlante got to walk free. On December 1st, 1987, Andrew Gustafson returned to his home in Townsend to discover a nightmare beyond imagination. His wife and two children were brutally murdered. His wife Priscilla, who had been pregnant at the time, had been brutally raped and shot through the head with a 22 caliber pistol. The body of his five-year-old son William was found face down in the bathtub upstairs. His eight-year-old daughter Abigail was found in the tub downstairs. Both children had been beaten, then drowned. Police found a knotted brown sock dampened with saliva that had been used as a gag near the bed where Priscilla Gustafson's body was found. 
There was semen found in the bedspread and part of a condom on the floor by the bed. In addition, several other ligatures were found made from various household objects, including a necktie, another sock, stockings, and a pair of pantyhose. Police also found a nearly full bottle of beer that the killer had taken from the downstairs refrigerator and several torn pages from a pornographic magazine. Investigators immediately thought of Daniel LaPlante as a possible suspect in the brutal crime. Earlier that fall, a series of daytime burglaries had taken place in the neighborhood where the Gustafsons lived. On October 14th, someone had broken into a nearby house and stole two Ruger 22 caliber pistols and their holsters, along with a sizable amount of cash. A few weeks later, Daniel LaPlante's stepfather would discover one of those guns in his stepson's possession. At the time, LaPlante tried telling his stepfather that the gun was his, and he'd gotten it legally the year before. It later turned out to be the same gun that killed Priscilla Gustafson. There was plenty of other evidence that pointed to Daniel LaPlante as well. Among the items LaPlante stole from the Gustafson home were a cordless telephone and a cable TV box, both of which LaPlante's own brother would discover and turn over to the police. When police went to LaPlante's home, he'd already fled. They brought out the tracking dogs to find him. The dogs led police to a nearby industrial park, where they were able to finally apprehend him. Daniel LaPlante is currently serving three life sentences. In 2014, he unsuccessfully sued to receive a variety of ritual oils, medallions, cakes, and even dragon's blood for his Wiccan religion. In 2017, his lawyer unsuccessfully argued before the court to allow two of his life convictions to be served concurrently, which would have allowed him to be eligible for parole that same year. As things stand now, LaPlante won't be eligible for parole for another 15 years. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always looking at a screen, now more than ever. And whether you're an average news watcher or in serious need of a distraction, unplugging yourself is easier said than done. One of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I'm itching for? By putting in my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great. Whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, binging an audiobook, or powering through your workout with a pumped-up playlist, a pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. My Raycon earbuds both look and sound great, and I've used them more than once to edit podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. No dangling wires or stems to get in your way here. Raycons come in a range of stylish colors, but always with a comfortable in-ear fit for a more discreet look. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life for six hours of playtime, you can unplug for a while. The best part? Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone, with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands. Right now, Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for my listeners, and here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com TC. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com TC. Buyraycon.com TC. 
And now, back to the show. On an icy day in September 1991, a pair of Germans named Helmut and Erika Simon were hiking through the wilderness surrounding Italy's Oztal Alps along the border of Italy and Austria when they made a gruesome discovery. There, along the edge of a mountain pass, they discovered a human corpse buried in the ice up to its torso. At first, they thought the body was that of a fellow hiker. They informed the authorities about what they had found, and for a time, it seemed like the body might never be extracted from the ice. Several attempts were made, but each failed due to bad weather and other mishaps. Then on September 22nd, they finally managed to dig the body out of the ice and bring it back for examination. Scientists quickly realized this body was no hiker. In fact, it belonged to someone much, much older than originally believed. More than 5,000 years older, as a matter of fact. The body of the Otzi Iceman, as he's affectionately come to be known, turned out to be a veritable treasure trove of information for scientists about what life was like for early humans. Through careful study and analysis, scientists have been able to determine a great deal about the man's life. He lived sometime between 3400 and 3100 BCE, and when he died, he was somewhere in his mid-40s. It's believed he may have been a shepherd, or perhaps a shaman or healer, based on some of the items he was found with. He was found dressed in several layers of clothing that included woven grass and animal skins, along with deer hide shoes with bare skin soles. Near his body were a flint knife, a copper axe, a fire starting kit, and an unfinished longbow along with 14 arrows. There were also several herbs and other items believed to be used for medicinal purposes. His body was covered in tattoos along his back and legs, and these are actually the oldest known tattoos of anyone ever found. But all that may not be the most interesting thing about the Iceman. You see, it also turns out that the Yotzi Iceman was murdered. There was a stone arrowhead buried in his back, but it wasn't the arrow that killed him. Researchers believe the Iceman died from a blow to the head. Based on some of the other clues surrounding the body, researchers have even been able to paint a picture of what might have happened to him. Bruises and other lacerations on his hands and body indicate he had gotten into a fight about 48 hours before his death. Coupled with the fact that his belongings were still all around him, makes some investigators believe that the man had been ambushed, probably in battle. It even looks like the Iceman managed to take down a couple of his attackers with him. The blood of two different individuals was found on one of the Iceman's arrowheads, along with some of his clothing, indicating he shot one person with the arrow, then retrieved it and shot someone else with it. All of which is interesting enough in its own, and quite literally is probably the coldest cold case in history. But beyond all the information the Iceman's body has been able to provide scientists about the life of prehistoric people, there's a darker and more sinister story that surrounds the Iceman as well. 
It's part of the story that demonstrates that perhaps there are some secrets that should never be known. And some mysteries that are best left in the ground. You see, some people believe that the Otsi Iceman may be cursed. And when you hear what happened to some of the people involved in his case, you'll understand why. Sixty-four-year-old Rainer Hen was one of the first scientists to help pry the Iceman from the Earth with his bare hands, and one of the people who actually helped place the body in a body bag. The year after he recovered the Iceman's body, Rainer Hen died in a catastrophic car crash on his way to give a lecture on his findings about the Iceman. The next person to die was 52-year-old Kurt Fritz, the mountain guide who led Rainer Hen to the body. He died when he got caught in a freak avalanche. Even though Fritz was an experienced hiker and guide, he was the only member of his party to actually get caught in the avalanche and become crushed beneath the snow and ice. After Fritz, during that very same year came the death of Rainer Holtz, the Austrian journalist who filmed the Iceman being removed from the ground for a documentary. He died tragically of a brain tumor. By now, rumors had begun to circulate about all the mysterious deaths surrounding the Yotzi Iceman, and stories began to spread that digging up the body had actually unleashed a dark curse upon all those who were involved in his unearthing. It sounds crazy, I know, but it was hard to dispel the very real tragedies that seemed to surround Otsi. What happened next only seemed to confirm the dark fears some people were having. In October 2004, Helmut Simon, one of the two hikers who found the Iceman, disappeared while on a hike through the mountains of Austria. After an intense search, his body was found, twisted and broken, in a stream after having fallen 300 feet off a ledge during a blizzard. His body, it should be noted, was found less than 100 miles from the location where he had discovered the Iceman just a few years earlier. Dieter Warnecke was the 45-year-old leader of the search party that found Simon's body. He was a fit and capable outdoorsman, and he actually attended Helmut Simon's funeral. Yet just one hour after the funeral, Dieter dropped dead of a massive heart attack. 55-year-old Conrad Spindler spoke to some journalists not long after and gave an interview in which he complained that the entire curse business was nothing but a load of superstitious rubbish. He was another one of the first scientists to examine the body, and he scoffed at the idea of a curse. He joked that the next thing the reporters would be saying was that he'd be the next to die. It's easy to sympathize with the man. Logic dictates that curses aren't real, and are merely simple coincidence. Yet six months after giving the interview, in which he mocked the very idea of a curse, Conrad Spindler was dead from complications related to multiple sclerosis. Tom Loy was one of the first researchers to discover the important blood evidence on the Iceman's clothes and tools that provided clues towards the circumstances of his death. He was found dead in his home just as he was finalizing a book about the Iceman. He died of a hereditary blood disease which, while tragic, doesn't seem like it could possibly be the result of a curse except for one small detail. 
You see, Tom Loy wasn't actually diagnosed with that blood disease until 1991, shortly after the first time he ever laid eyes on the Iceman. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder, the patrons to the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and boost us in their rankings. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places where you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our entire back catalog of shows on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and our Facebook page. Feel free to drop us a line at any one of these places, or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.